Okay, so we're going to be learning about the topic of an eye for an eye. We mentioned it last, yesterday on Shabbos briefly, and we're going to go through it. We're going to discover some fascinating stuff. There's money flying everywhere over here. Um, there's, uh, we're going to f- discover some interesting stuff. If you pay attention, you may even find a very um, famous literary um, joke or questionable literary joke. We'll get there. But in order to make sure we're going in um, straight, Let's first read, um, if not all, but most of the relevant pesukim. So if you open up Yuchol Mashim to yesterday's parsha, parsha from Mishpatim, chapter 21, verse 22 and on. So in the Kaplan in front of you, it's going to be on page 361. Three sixty-one, in the middle of the page. I'm going to read it in the Hebrew and English. And the reason I'm reading it in the Hebrew and in the English, even though the language of most people here is English, is well, two reasons. First of all, because we read the holy words of the Torah in its language, but also as we discussed on Friday nights. Who was here Friday nights about the the, the mother's milk? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's no. The, the, there basically is almost no such thing as translation, certainly in contemporary English Chumashim. Any translation that we have today is really by definition interpretation. And so they're useful, but it's also important to try to read it in the original, and even if you're not familiar with the language, to as much as possible shave it down to the bare minimum, what do the actual words say? Um, so let's read in Psukim 22 and on. And when people fight, and they um, dam- or they they hurt, or they, they, what's the word? How does he translate it? They harm a pregnant woman. And her fetuses go out, so she loses the pregnancy. But there is no death of an adult. He should be punished, as the husband of the woman um, places upon him, and it's done through, given through the judges. Okay, so this is not really the puzzle which we're interested in focusing on, but I'll just explain briefly that this means that if a person, if, if so, so, he, so he hit a pregnant woman, the woman herself survived, but the fetuses um, remained alive, so we do not consider that to be murder, and there is no death penalty for that, but there is only... Um, there, but, but he has to give a monetary compensation as the judges determine. Pa- the next pasuk, pasuk 23, if there is a tragedy, meaning if the woman is killed, you give a nefesh, a life, tachas, now here's this, this word tachas is going to be basically the topic of the whole discussion today, but tachas means for, instead of, in lieu of, in place of, a life. Now here there's a big machlokes, which is important for us to bear in mind for today's discussion. What does this mean? Does this mean that if, again, what's going on over here? Ruvain and Shimon are fighting with each other, and then by accident, Ruvain punches Shimon's wife and kills her. So, is Ruvain put to death for that or not? And the, the crux of the discussion is, obviously, murder is a, capital, is a capital offense, but what happens if a person intended to kill one person and accidentally kill somebody else instead, is that also punishable by death? So if you say it is punishable by, by, by death, then nef- by death, the nefesh tachas nefesh means 
he a life for a life. You killed, you get killed. If we say he's not liable for death, so then we translate the words nefesh tachas nefesh that he pays money. Again, we're not getting into how much right now, but he pays money instead. He pays the value of a life, so to speak, instead of the actual life. Then the puzzle continues, and this is what's relevant to us. Ayin tachas ayin, an eye, an eye tachas an eye. So if he damages an eye, he has to be giving an eye. Okay, I think everybody sort of knows the punchline here that we don't actually shake, take out the person's eye, but we give him a financial penalty. Um, Shane. What? Or should we? Oh, right. Well, that's really the discussion. Okay. Shein tachas shein. A tooth for a tooth. Yad tachas yad. A hand for a hand. Justice. Regal tachas regal. A foot for a foot. Or a leg for a leg. Kavio tachas kavio. So, Pasuk 23 listed limbs uh, or body parts, which are very important. Ah, you need to see. Shein, you need to eat. Teeth, you need to eat. A hand and foot, you need to get around the place. And then, in the next Pasuk, we say other things which are not damaging, usually in the sense of completely... Um, disabling a person, but they can be uh, very um, painful, etc. Kaviyah, a burn for a burn, Petzah, a wound for a wound, Chaburah, a bruise for a bruise, let's translate it as. Okay. Um, now, let's turn to Parshish Emmer, which is Vayikra, chapter 24, and Vapasuk Yutas, 19, and in your Chumash that's in front of you in the Kaplan Chumash, this is going to be on page 6 2, sorry, 6 3 1. Aren't there whole cities like built for people who accidentally kill other people? Yeah, really. Yeah. All right. Let's try. Stay, let's try. Let's please try. So this is deliberate. Let, let's try to stay on topic if that's okay. Thank you. Well, that's what we're saying. This is deliberate. When somebody causes damage, somebody deliberately. They, when they, they, they deliberately wanted to kill one person, but they so over here it says in verse nineteen, If a person um, will inflict a wound in his fellow, Kasher also as he did to the other, Kenya also such shall be done to him. So if you were having any doubts as to whether when we said before an eye for an eye means literally an eye for an eye, if it means money, here it seems even more explicit. As he did, such shall be done to him. Shever tachas shever, broken, I assume that, shever means a break, but I guess a broken bone instead of a broken bone. Fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Ka'asher yitin mumba adam, as a blemish is placed in one person, so shall it be placed in him. So it doesn't matter if it's Accidental or intentional? Let's talk about intentional for now. Okay. Because the, the, the crux of the discussion today is why are, are we going to inflict the wound on the perpetrator or not? And if not, and we're only going to charge him money, why does the Torah express itself the way it does? That's really the main topic of today's, uh, today's discussion. But it's a, again, like I said, it's a fascinating topic with, I mean, right here I have a whole book just on this topic. This is a very modern book, but over the years there's been literally, I would say, thousands of pages of scholarship written on this topic. Um, and then one more important source that we must look at is at the end of Parshish Masse. So we're looking in the book of Bamidbar now, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 35. 
And that's going to be in your Kaplan Chumash on page. Um, one second. Yeah, on page 857. So, the 857. Okay. So, verse 1 says, Hashem spoke to Moshe in the plains of Moyov, on the on, on the on the Jordan on the bank of the Jordan, saying right now the reason I showed you this pasuk is because it's important to bear in mind that this pasuk was said at the end of the forty years sojourn in the desert, on the just before in Arvis before they went into the land. Now turn over one page to verse thirty-one, actually two pages. So now we're on page eight sixty-one or eight sixty in the Hebrew, and we're looking at verse thirty-one, and it says, You should not take ransom money for the life of a murderer, Asher who is um, sentenced to the, who is a w- wicked person deserving of death, he must surely die. So it says here that if somebody is to be sentenced to death, you should not have compassion on him and take um, uh, uh, ransom, but rather you must exact retribution. Okay, clearly, this last puzzle we'll see soon why that was so relevant, but looking at the, primarily at the first two sources that we said from <coughs> yesterday's Parsha in Mishpatim, Exodus <coughs> chapter 21, and Parsha Sachrimois by Yukra chapter 24, it seems pretty clear that if you were just to just read Scripture and not be aware at all of the interpretation of our sages, you would come away certainly with the conclusion that if somebody knocks out somebody's eye, you take out his eye. If somebody um, breaks somebody's bone, you break his bone. That would seem to be the clear implication. And in fact, this was, not surprisingly, the approach of the Tzedekim. The Sadducees, who are famous or infamous for always rejecting the teachings of Chazal and only following the actual... um, the actual, um, so to speak, straightforward, literal. Uh, literal meaning of Scripture, they believed that this is actually how you do it. And this is recorded in Megillus Tainus. Megillus Tainus is a uh, Tanaic um, book, work which talks about the, what's special about all different dates in the calendar. And it says that on the 14th of Tammuz is a very exci- special day. It's a day of celebration. Why? Because... That the Baisusim, the Tzedekim Baisusim, the, the, the various uh, heretic, groups of heretics, they would interpret ayin tachas ayin literally, that if a person knocks out somebody's eye or tooth, you have to do so to him. And other things in the Torah which they, um, they, which they interpreted literally, for example, the Yarka Bafanov, when Chalitza is performed, um, and the woman has to spit, so Chazal say that she has to spit on the floor in front of the assembled or in front of the, the brother-in-law. But they learned Vyarka Bufanov that she actually has to spit into his face oh. <laughs> and other such examples. But the Torah said, the, to- the, the, the sages said to the, to the heretics over there, how could you possibly say this? The Torah says you should write down the Torah and the mitzvah which I commanded them to teach them. So in other words, it's explicit within scripture that there's also an oral tradition of a uh, guide to how to interpret scripture. So how could you take one w- without the other? And on that day, 
um, which they, I guess, there was some sort of victory over in the argument over the, the, the Sadducees, was considered a day of celebration. Um, the 14th day of Tammuz, once upon a time, was a day of celebration, and the victory of the Masorah, the tradition of Chazal, over those who s- seek to reject it. Later on in the class today, we'll see a little bit more details as to what the nature of the proofs that the sages brought against the Sadducees are. Now, how do we in fact know that, um, how do we in fact know that Ayin Tachas Ayin means money and not that you don't knock out the person's eye, take out the person's eye, but rather he gives money. So, in the Gemara and Bavakama, there are no less than ten limudim, ten opinions of how we know this. In other words, everybody has probably tasted some Gemara before, where the Gemara brings, you know, the Pasuk says this, and it could have said it like this, or it should have said it like that, or we have a similar word from this Pasuk to that Pasuk. There's all different... Uh, methods of what we call big, biblical exegesis, of how we deduce and determine things based on Pesukim. And in a lengthy sugya in the Gemara and Bavakama, there are no less than ten different opinions as to how exactly we know that Ayin Tachas Ayin um, means money rather than actually taking out the person's eye. Um, so we're not going to go through all ten of them, that would be a, bit, a little bit tedious, but Generally speaking, we could d- divide those ten into three different um, groups. The first is the translation of the word tachas. So some of the statements, both of Chazal and even later of the Rishonim, get into this idea of what does the word tachas actually mean. So tachas could mean in place of. So, for example, in Haksav HaKabala, from... Um, Mecklenburg, back of T. Mecklenburg, right? So he goes, he, he elaborates on this. I mean, yeah, he elaborates on this. And he brings different places where you sometimes tachas means that one thing fills the place of another. Um, like we would say a successor. So a successor is referred to in the Torah. In one place we have a koyen, a mashiach tacht of You have the koyen gadol, and then when he passes, his son succeeds him. So that, that is referred to as tachtov or tachas, instead in of, place of in, in the place of him. So there you're saying A is filling the place of B, or B is what filling, other, what other filling, filling the place of A. <coughs> right. Then, uh, uh, or you could have tachas, meaning A is tachas B, it means A is caused by B. So, for example, we have many of these examples in the Torah. Um, one is, uh, let's say, because he loved your ancestors, therefore, he chose his, um, your, you, the descendants, um, to, 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 as his nation. Right? Or, asher you know, this example is brought by the Gemara, that if a person... Um, rapes a girl, so then he has to pay the fine, because he caused her to suffer. Many other examples like this. Um, so over there, we can't say, let's say, we're not saying that the 50 
the, the, the 50, the, the fine that the person pays sort of undoes the rape. Not saying that, you know, the, 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 there's a Kohen Gadol and then there's a successor and B fills the places of A. We're not saying that B fills the place of A. We're saying that A causes B. Because you raped him, therefore, her, therefore you have to pay this fine. So here also what we're arguing is that Ayin Tachas Ayin doesn't really replace, knocking out your eye, the, the, the offender's eye isn't going to replace the eye of the person who was so it can't mean tachas in that sense, and therefore it must mean tachas in the second sense, that b- because you did this, therefore we're going to do that. Now, so, so because you did this, therefore we're going to do that, meaning therefore we're going to charge you money, not necessarily therefore we're going to... The fair value of an eye. Right. Now, but there's actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, because one of the questions, which we hopefully we'll have a chance to touch on briefly at least, is... Whose eye are you taking? Who's, who, the value of whose eye? The value of the eye of the perpetrator or the value of the eye of the victim? Um, but we'll get to that. Okay, so that's one theme in the Gemara. Another theme... Does that mean a replacement eye or just money? Money, money. money, money. No replacement. Well, whatever that might be included, the cost of that might be included. I don't know that there was such a thing as a replacement no, eye back in the day. No, no, but now there, now there could be, though. All right. Another category in the Gemara is that the Pasuk says, and if you turn back to the Pesukim we looked at in, in, in Leviticus chapter 24, 22, it says, Mishpat There should be one law for you, for everyone. So the Gemara says, and various different iterations of this, that you can't really, if you're going to actually take out the person's eye, then you can't have one rule for everybody. Because sometimes it's not going to be possible. What if the person who, who the perpetrator was already blind? Or what if he's big and he's small and he's more short? You know, there could be so many differences. It's only you could only actually do the same th- thing to A and B exactly the same in the mishpat echad in the universal exact case if the two people are exactly the same scenario. And sometimes that's not even possible because you don't know for sure that by inflicting the wound on the perpetrator that you're not going to accidentally make it even worse a wound or even kill him. What if you're going to do something that's going to, you know, he broke his ribs and you're going to break this guy's ribs and by mistake you're going to break his spine while you're at it. So, and so, so it's not really like precise surgeons for this. So, so, so the fact that the Torah says mishpat echad that there's a universal rule for all uh, teaches us that it cannot be that you inflict the wound because we cannot act with such precision. And even if we could, there are situations when it's an inherently impossible. Like for example, like I said, if the perpetrator was already blind before he started, and so therefore it must mean financial things. I mean, another now, like, kind of thing would be, let's say a person's like an MLB pitcher. He's got, yeah. he's known to have oh, a great arm. The, and so he surgery. caused the damage to the other person's arm. And this person's kind of like, he, he, you know, he might do something that doesn't require anything physical. He might be have an intellectual kind of profession. So for you to take away that MLB pitcher's right. arm and respond to it, it's not really equivalent. It's not really an, an arm for an arm. It's like, yeah, it's technically it's an arm for an arm, but it's not the same arm for that. Exactly. <laughs> for the arm. It's the opportun- lost opportunity. Now, the ways of yeah, that's going to cost him his entire <laughs> income. The ways of woman will insure anything. So Marilyn Monroe's legs were insured for $10 million well, apiece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were they were insured, so yeah, exactly. They have insurance. They actually have an actual value. You don't need to have that, though. Huh? You don't need necessarily to have insurance. No, but they they did purchase that insurance. Yeah, no, I realize that. All right, and then another approach goes like this: We saw the pasuk in Pasha's Masay 
in the end of Bamidbar, where it says, do not take your ransom for the life of a murderer. Right, now what could you deduce from there? Uh, do not take not money. Take in other words, if somebody is a murderer and he needs to be put to death, <coughs> don't take money from him to bail out of the death penalty. But we could deduce from there that whom can you not take a bailout money for? A murderer. Mm-hmm. But if it's Rosh Yevarim, if he didn't murder, he just damaged the person's body, but didn't actually murder, then you can take ransom. Mm-hmm. See, the Pesach also says, Rabbi, that if he was put in a refuge city and the Kohen died, don't even let him leave the city. Yeah, because that's all we're talking about, a murderer. Right, right. But if he's not a murderer... So then you don't have, then you can't take, you could deduce from that that you can't take a ransom. Now, I should point out, and this touches on what you said, that there is an opinion in the Gemara in Rebelezer that says, I in Tachas, I in Mamash. Rebelezer says, no, an actual eye for an eye. And the Gemara says, what? How could Rebelezer, no, that's like, that's way, that's completely beyond the parameters of our tradition. How could Rebelezer say that? Um, and so Toysis explained that, and based on other Rishonim, the, 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 one of the explanations that certainly Rebelezer is, that, what he means to say is that he deserves for his eye to be taken out, and hopefully we'll have some time to elaborate on that a little bit more, but what's the practical ramifications of this? That he's saying the reason why the Torah says an eye for an eye is because, is because that's what he deserves to happen, and therefore you should know, and that also teaches you, because that's what deser- that also teaches you the nature of the payment, because when you have to, when when if Ruvain takes out Shimon's eye, and then we say, okay, you have to pay, but we're not going to take out your eye, you have to pay money. So how much money does he have to pay? Does he have to pay the value of what he damaged? So you t- n- n- took out Shimon's eye, so somehow we have to come up with a financial, with a price tag on Shimon's eye, and that's what you have to compensate him. So you might now made his life, yeah, if, for example, he was insured. How much would Shimon's eye have been insured for, or in ancient terminology we say how much would Shimon have been sold on the slave market for with an eye without an eye that's the that's the that's the price tag on Shimon's eye that's one approach or you could say no you Ruvain deserve for your eye not you <laughs> deserve for your eye to be taken out so we're not going to actually do that instead you're going to pay ransom for your own eye so according to that method the amount of money Ruvain's going to have to pay is not how much money Shimon's eye was worth but how much money his own eye is worth mm-hmm. Which could be deficient or less than. Right, maybe. That's that. Can you make that point again? The main mazik or the main nizik? If you're paying the damages, then you're paying for the price of, of the victim's eye. Right. If you're saying, no, that really you deserve to have your own eye knocked out, but for whatever reason we're not going to actually do that, whether because that's not going to help anybody uh, or because it's not practical to implement or whatever it is, and therefore you're going to pay a ransom. You don't you pay ransom. What's the ransom? The ransom is you pay the value of the, vi- of the perpetrator's eye, not the value your own eye. So the perpetrator pays the victim of his, the pr- value of his own well, eye. Well, that's what mamish means. Right? Yeah, that's one of the interpretations, yes. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, now, one of the... Yeah. Just a quick question. So, <clears throat> the Torah says damages have to be paid in, in compensation in some, in some form. Let's say I'm the injured party, I lose an eye, whatever. Do I have the ability to say to that person, you know what, you don't have to pay me? For, for whatever it be, they have or maybe it's a brother or whatever. Do I have the, 
ability to go against the Torah and say no. Yes, there's a general rule in all financial matters, basically, besides interest, that you could always, that when it comes to money, you could always forego a loan. You could say, if I owe you money, you don't need to. Yes. But if the interpretation is it's an organ for an organ, I'm not talking about money, would I have the ability to say... Yes. I, I still think so. That's good. interesting point, but I still don't think that would change. Okay. Now, before we look at the Rambam, I need to give you some history, and here's where we're going to get. Here's where we're going to get into um, something a little bit comical. So, throughout the last millennia, one of the areas of Jewish of Torah study that has um, taken up the time of many a scholar is finding sources for what the Rambam says. The Rambam one of the most important works that we have. He wrote a new ma- massive halachic work, and he doesn't provide sources for what he says. Now, obviously, 90-something percent of what the Rambam says is not difficult to find. You learn the Masechta, if he's the laws of Shabbos, you learn the Masechta in Gemara about Shabbos, and the Bavlian, and the Yerushalmi, and in all the Brises, and all the works we have, and you're going to find the, you find the source. But, every so often, there are things that the Rambam say that we don't have a source for. Now, the first person who was baffled by this problem was none other than the Rambam himself. That's, um, that's why I was smiling. Right? The Rambam himself, <laughs> in a letter... I don't know where I got this. <laughs> ...to Rapinchas Adayin, he writes that he's intending and hoping to publish himself a supplement work to the Mishnah Torah in which he's going to provide the source for everything that he wrote, which is not in, you know, he's not going to go through Hilchah Shabbos and show how everything is in the Gemara and Shabbos, but anything that's in the laws of Shabbos that is taken from other places, you know, from the laws of Gittin, the Gemara, by the way, mentions something about Shabbos, all those things he's going to publish a work with the sources. Now, the Rambam, as far as we know, never got around to it. Um, and the Rambam himself describes a very frustrating episode that he experienced that he was one time he found the halach in his own sefer which he could not find the, halach, the, the, the source for and he said uh, if it's in Makkas, it's in Yvamis, in Gitin he just couldn't find the source for it now scholars have subsequently um, uh, at least uh, guessed which, which halach it was that the Rambam couldn't find the source for and why he couldn't find it and where the source actually is that's not for now but this issue of finding sources in the Rambam has always been a, uh, an, a, a, a something which has busied Torah scholars. Now, can I just ask a quick yeah. question? So, does that suggest that he vicariously wrote a point of view? Or no, the Rambam emphasizes in that letter, in that very letter, that there is nothing in the in the entire work. There is not a single thing that is his own interpretation, uh-huh. unless he says so explicitly. If he says Yeroy Ali or something like that, then you know it's his. But if it's not that, then you should be a thousand percent sure he really lays it on thick in that letter that it there is a source for it. And if you can't find it, it's because you haven't now, searched. I always uh, assumed found. that he was at Sadiq and he got it directly from Hashem. <coughs> I mean. I mean now, I, I know you're going to tell me otherwise, but okay. that's what now, I Now, historically, we have Midrashim. We've had for th- forever, from the time of the time, we've had Midrashim. The Midrash, for example, on Bamidbar and Dvarim is Sifri, and, <laughs> is Sifra, the Midrash on the Yikra is Sifri. The Midrash on the book of Shemais that we've always had is Mechilta. It's called Mechilta. Now, the Mechilta is Midrashim, it's... The, uh, we're talking here about halachic midrashim, not agadic midrashim. So these are the halachic um, teachings. And it's mechilta, the one that we've always had is called mechilta de Rabbi Yishmael. The mechilta of Rabbi Yishmael on the book of Shemais. Now, Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Kiva, we actually discussed this recently, I think, but Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Kiva represent two different schools of thought in general. And 
So the Medrashim that we have on, Vay- on Vayikra and Bamidbar, Sifri and Sifra, they follow the school of Rabbi Kiva. And the Medrash of Mechilta Dervei Bishmoel on Shemois follows, like the name suggests, Rabbi Shmoel, the opinion of Rabbi Shmoel. Now, we know, we've, we've always known, that there once, was a, once upon a time was a book called Mechilta Dervei Shemoel Ben Yechai on Shemois. That the Mechilta of Rabbi Shemoel Ben Yechai which also follows the school of they're the same school, that follows the school of Rabbi Kiva, that, that existed. We know that it existed because we see early Rishonim and Goenim quoting it, but it had been for many, many centuries completely lost to us. We only knew that of its existence from secondary sources. Now, this all changed um, after the discovery of the Cairo Gniza. The Cairo Gniza contained fragments of Medrash, which seemed to be, which were, were very small fragments, which were proven to be from Mechilta de Ribshim Ben Yechai. By the way, this whole summary of the different Mechiltas was written up by somebody who I follow on Twitter l- last week, so I'm taking it from him. Not everybody agrees with all the details of how he presents it, but this, I'm just presenting it how he presents it. Um, so we started getting fragments of this Mechilta de Rabshim Ben Yechai. And then what happened was, there was a Yemenite um, Talmud Chacham who, print, who, who published a Medrash called Medrash HaGadol. Medrash HaGadol was a, is a anthology of all different, of many different Midrashim. But based on the discoveries from the Cairo Geniza and taking together from Medrash HaGadol, sco- scholars were able to take out from the Medrash HaGadol parts that belonged to Mechilta de Rabshim Ben Yechai. And so, in um, the, I want to say, in the early 1900s, for the first time, uh, no, maybe mid-1900s, like maybe the 1940s or 50s, somewhere there, I believe, for the first, is discovered at the, uh, the early 1900s, late, maybe even the late 1800s. Um, I think mid, I think in the 1940s or 50s, for the first time, Mechil to Shim Ben Yechai was published as a whole book taken all of segments from the Medrash HaGadol, from this Yemenite Medrash, that scholars were able to prove, based on linguistics and style, style and all different things, that they belonged to Mechil to Ben Yechai, were published as a book alone. This was a huge, um, for hundreds of, for many centuries, this book was considered completely lost to us, and now it had returned. Comes along, enter Reb Mendel Kasher. Reb Menachem Mendel Kasher was a huge genius, somebody who accomplished things which it's, it's almost unimaginable to understand how a person could accomplish so much without the tools that we have today, the search tools and everything. And his most uh, monumental project is the Torah Shlema, where he publishes the entire Torah, and br- the entire Chumash, and puts all of Torah Shabal Peh that's connected to, e- to the Pasuk on that, on the on those <coughs> Pesukim. And his commentary and his notes and his essays on it are just unparalleled and unimaginable in their depth and breadth. Now, so Ramendel Kasher, he's made a discovery. And he said that, n- that if you look through the entire 14 books of the Rambam and look at all the passages of Rambam that scholars over the years have um, failed to find at least a convincing source for, you will see that many of them their source is none other than the Mechil Tadim Shem Ben Yechoi. This book that had been missing for so many centuries, now that we have it, we can tr- point to so many Rambams that come from the Mechil Tadim Shem Ben Yechoi. Hmm. 
Until now, everything I've said is fact. Nothing I've said until now. I mean, maybe I'm off with some details. Now, well, you said this is somewhere in the in the mid 19. 1900? Yeah. I believe that Mendel Kasher's first edition of this book was published in in 19... I'll tell you exactly. Um, in, in 19, the first edition of his book, of Mendel Kasher's book, was printed in 1943. And the first edition of Michil to the Rashbi was published in... I'll tell you exactly. Where was he from? <coughs> I'm not sure. The first edition of Rambam Mechil to the Rashbi from Mendel Kasher was printed in 1943. Subsequently, um, subsequently it was discovered, m- more fragments of Geniza were discovered, and in 1955, so um, we're talking here 13 years after Mendel Kasher publishes his first edition of Mechil to the Rashbi, a new edition of Mechil to the Rashbi was published based on new manuscript, new fragments of Geniza from Cairo that were discovered and further analyzed and, 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 and with painstaking work of all these scholars. And according to the, so, so this is new edition in 1955 is published by two scholars by the name of Epstein and Malamud, and what they um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm missing one piece here in the, in the puzzle. Hmm. Um, so, again, in 1943, Mendel Kasher publishes this work demonstrating many passages in the Rambam that their source is Michal Tadashbi. However, um, there is a scholar by the name of Tzaitlin, Shnei Zalman Tzaitlin, or Solomon Tzaitlin, and he further analyze things, and he says that there's mistakes. There are things that are published in Mechil Tadarashbi that cannot be from Mshim Ben Yechai. They must be later sources that whoever, the, the original scholar, what's his name? Meir um, Bashalom, who published the Mechil Tadarashbi, he, he, he was analyzing Medrash HaGadol, and he thinks that these passages belong there, but actually they're much later. So, for example, one of the examples this guy on Twitter gave is that in Mechil Tadarashbi, in the original, you have a phrase, Churban Bayesheni, the destruction of the Second Temple. Now, this Tzaitlin proves that the tr- referring to the Second Temple as Bayesheni, as the Second Temple, that, that terminology was first coined in Amoraic times. So it cannot be that that passage belongs in Mechil Tadarashbi, which is a Tanaic, um, work. So he proved that things crept into Mechil Tadashbi that don't belong there and so things that Reb um, Mendel Kasher is attributing to be the source of the Rambam cannot actually in fact have been the source to the Rambam. Now, then move fast forward to 1955. There's a new um, there's a new edition of Mechil Tadashbi published based on further an, uh, anal- anal- analytics from scholars and new discoveries from the Geniza. And they, and they, dis, and they publish a new edition of Michal Tadarashbi. Uh, based on his work, what some scholars argued, I don't know that Kasher ever acquiesced to this argument, but some scholars argued that the Yemenites, besides having a lot of manuscripts that, that, that we didn't have in the rest of the Jewish world, they also had a very, very big um, admiration, and we've, we know this from many places, they had a, a tremendous admiration to the Rambam. And so when this Rabbi Adani is publishing his Medrash HaGadol, and he's including parts from all different texts that he considers important, including the Chilte Darashbi, he's also including parts, passages from the Rambam. And so we end up with 
what some are claiming to be this literary joke, where there are passages from the Rambam which in, were incorporated in Medrash HaGadol, which were then misunderstood to be parts of Mechil Tadirashbi, which Mendel Kasher then understands to be sources for the Rambam. So the source for the unknown, the unknown source for the Rambam turned out to be none other than the Rambam himself. <laughs> right? Full circle. Right. Right? It sounds the same. It's like right. almost the same words. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so until this... <laughs> the Yemenites. Thank you. <laughs> it's an identical wording. I'm until the source. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And then in 19... Going to Harvard. <laughs> in <laughs> 2,500 years in Yemen. In 1980, in 1980, Rabbi Kasher um, publishes a new version of his Rambam Mechil Tadrashpi, updated based on new um, discoveries and new things from the Geniza. Um, again, I don't know that Kasher actually admitted to... I think he still claims... And, Again, I didn't have time to read through all the different versions of the thing. Okay. What's all this got to do with Ayin Tachasayin? Okay. So, the Rambam, in his halachic work, in the Mishnah Torah, in the Laws of Chayvah, the Masik, chapter 1, he starts out by, from Halacha base through Halacha 6, Establishing that ayin tachasayin does not mean that you take out the person's eye; it means that he pays a fine. So it says like he goes like this: um, this that it says in the Torah, an eye for an eye. This that it says that in, uh, in Emmer that as he does the blemish, socially you should blemish him back. It, what it means is that he is worthy; he he deserves to be taken out of limb, and therefore he has to pay. Um, And therefore, he has to pay. And wh- wh- where do we see this in the Torah? So he brings the, th- the from the, the proof from the Gemara, which we mentioned before, that it says, "Don't take a ransom for a murderer." From him, where you from whence you can deduce that you do take a ramba, um, uh, uh, um, um, ransom ransom for somebody who has caused damage. Then the Rambam continues, and he says, "Where do you know?" That from where do we know that when it says with the with the Rashi Evarim that an eye for an eye that it means money, and he brings a new source, and this is a source that we haven't seen yet. It doesn't say this anywhere in the Gemara, and this source says like this: one of the things it says an eye for an eye, but then later in the pasuk it says a wound for a wound. Now when it says when we're talking about a wound, we have other sources to contrast this with because early on in the parsha it says clearly that if somebody wounds somebody else, he pays money. So therefore. When it says a wound for a wound, it must mean that he pays money, not that you actually inflict a wound in the perpetrator, because earlier it said money. So therefore, we can also deduce from there that an eye for an eye doesn't mean you knock out his eye, it means he pays money. And then the Rambam continues with a very important line, and he says, even though... Sorry? Early on, it says, where it says, that if a person inflicts a wound, he pays money. So later on, when it says a wound for a wound, it cannot mean that you actually give him a wound, because it already said that you pay him money. Then he continues, and he says, even though that everything that I've described can be deduced from the written law, from scripture, nevertheless, these are all explicitly also taught from and this is how our ancestors witnessed being judged from the time of the basin of Yehoshua, from the basin of Yehoshua and, and, and Shmuel, etc., there was never a time that the Jewish people actually enforced this type of law of an eye for an eye. Literally, it was always financial payment. Right away, Frechtelach Mishnah, a number of questions, but 
uh, one of his questions is this whole second pasuk that the Rambam brings that because it says Chabura that a wound pays money, therefore Chabura Tachas Chabura must mean money, therefore Ayin Tachas Ayin must also mean money. Where in the world does the Rambam get this from? Mm-hmm. And he finishes off by saying maybe the Rambam found this somewhere or he had some Gerson in the Gemara. That needs a source. That that kind of argumentation, which is yeah, the Rambam doesn't give his own biblical limudim. Uh, but it's not a limit, it's like a logical. It's saying here, Rambam, it's saying explicitly it's money. No, the Rambam. So then does it must not, be earlier when it's. The Rambam does not do that in Mishnah Torah. Not just that, why does it need the second source? Yeah, the Rambam asked that also, 100%. Mm-hmm. Good question. But the Rambam Mishnah finishes off by saying, perhaps there's some place where the Rambam found such a drosha, or he had a different gears in the Gemara. Who knows? And he finishes off with Sarachion. Comes Mendel Kasha in his book on Pasha's Mishpatim, and he demonstrates that, in fact, like many other things, this. Unknown source of the Rambam is none other than the Michil to the Rashbi. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now. So, the Rambam brings this source, which we now know is from Michil to the Rashbi, and then he goes on to say that this is how we've always done things all the way back to the times of Yahushua. Now, let's go back a little bit. Oh, excellent question, excellent question. What was the question? Why, if the Gemara brings not the three, ten, I, I, oh, I said there's three categories. What, what, if the Rambam, if the Rambam, if there's ten answers in the Gemara, why does the Rambam prefer this obscure, this one answer in the Medrash? Hmm. So, Kasher writes about that. I wasn't going to get into it, but now that you ask. Um, he, Kasher wants to, Taina, and again, he has many, he does this very elaborately with a lot of different proofs, etc., that one of those ten answers in the Gemara is... Is is the second half of this Michal to the Rashbi, and there's like well, basically the Gemara doesn't bother quoting the whole source from the Medrash, but really that's what the Gemara means to say. Um, anyway, I, if you want to see inside, I can show it to you. All right, now let's go back. We're going to come back to the Rambam in a moment, but let us let us see. Um, we promise to get back to the Sadducees. So, Ben Zuta. Ben Zuta was a famous Karite scholar. And in fact, he mentioned on Friday night about the Ibn Ezra, one of the, I think, I think you could arguably say the most famous polemical comment of the Ibn Ezra is in Parshish Mishpatim, where he quotes a Ben Zuta, and whenever the Ibn Ezra quotes these guys, he has little patience for them. And... <laughs> Benzuta translates Shayre. It says if an ox scores the ox of his friend, so Reehu, who's the friend? The friend is the owner of the of the second ox, right? Benzuta says no. Shayreehu means if an ox scores the ox, that's his friend. In other words, that one ox scores another. Mm-hmm. And that's how he translates the pasuk. We're not going to get into now why he translated yeah. that. What his intention was. How it makes a difference. But right? yeah, yeah, it makes a difference. Whatever. Ibn Ezra goes on refuting the whole thing, and then the last line, and this is the very famous line of the Ibn Ezra: that ox don't oxen don't have friends besides Benzuta. He could be a friend to an ox. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this Benzuta he features over here in <coughs> argumentation with Reb Sadi Goin. On, um, on the meaning of Ayn Tachas Ayn. And um, I found it interesting to note 
that, to my knowledge, the only time in his entire commentary on the Torah that Rashi references Reb Sadigoin, even though Sadigoin lived many years before Rashi, um, well, many, but lived uh, certainly before Rashi, yeah, um, the only time that I'm aware, that as far as I know, there's only one single time in his entire commentary to the Chumash that Rashi quotes Reb Sadia, and that is in Parshas Mishpatim, towards the end, where Rashi t- teaches us that all the t- that the ten Dibrais, the Aserah Dibrais, incorporate uh, some reference or allusion to all the 613 mitzvahs, and Rashi says that in the piyot um, that was established by Reb Sadia, he established, shows you, he, he, he does the work for you to show you how all 613 of the mitzvahs are included in the Aserah Dibrais. Um, so, it's just, I found that interesting that Rashi quotes Reb Sadia one and only time in his Pirush to Chumash. Anyway, so let me read to you a little bit of the conversation between Reb Sadigoin and Ben Zuto. I don't know. Uh, um, so, Omer Reb Sadia, we cannot translate this pasuk literally that if a person hits an eye um, and, and and causes him to lose a third of his eyesight, how are you going to be able to do that back? You're not going to be able to scientifically, you know, take away a third of his eyesight. Maybe you'll make him fully blind. Maybe he'll die. This cannot be. So Ben Zutta says back to Sadia, it seems, again, I'm not 100% familiar with the history here, but it seems like Ben Zutta and Sadia are actually having this conversation. Um, so Ben Zutta says to him, what do you mean? It says clearly in Parshus and Akhriba Kasha Yitin Mumba Adam, as the person wounds the other, so it shall be done to him. So Psadigoin said to him that um, in, you have to Yeshlanu base Tahas Al instead of um, instead of so shall you do to him, it so shall you place upon him, meaning you place upon him the financial punishment. So they argued up and back. He says, Kenya also loy. says you should do it to him. It doesn't say you should do it on him, which would mean to impose a punishment. And then Rapsadigon the quotes back to him a postal from Shimshin. That Shimshin said, Kasha Osuli, just like they, the Plishtim, did to me, so will I do to them. So he says, What do you mean? Shimshin didn't do back what they did to him. He didn't take their wives and give them he didn't it means he took he 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 took revenge. It doesn't mean that he did the same thing back to him, so it's the exact same language. Um so then Benzuta says to him, hold on, if you're going to say it means money, what are you going to do if the person is poor and doesn't have any money? Um, so he says, and what are you going to do? So Sadi says back to him, okay, so if, that's the, if there's no exceptions, then what are you going to do? What happens if the, if the perpetrator is blind? How are you going to do it? What are you going to do then? And a poor person, at least there's a possibility, remote as it may be, that he may one day be get, become wealthy and be able to pay up. Mm-hmm. But a blind person will never be able to um, see, again. see again and then you make him blind again. Therefore, says Reb Sadia, we can never understand any of the mitzvahs of the Torah if we do not rely on the words of Chazal, as we receive the tradition from our ancestors of how to explain the Torah. Um, then he gives other examples. He says, "What if he knocks out a tooth and he's a child that he's going to get a uh, you know he's going to get another tooth later on in life? Uh, what if uh, he gives the example that you gave, uh, not Chas uh, Shalom of basketball, but uh, similar th- things? Yeah, okay. <laughs> a surgeon, a surgeon right. with, his, uh, or like with his hands. Shalom. All, all sports are the same. Um, Wait, football. No, whatever. Anyway, I'm just teasing you. Fine. Um, then he quotes from the Kuzari. Um, he says. Um, there's another pasuk that says somebody who hits an animal, somebody who kills an animal, should pay it a life for a life. 
right? So he says, what, what are you going to say? That if somebody kills your horse, that you, that, that, um, that, that you kill his so- horse back? What's the point of that? Mm-mm. He kills your horse, so maybe you should take his horse to, to use instead of yours. Well, he kills your horse, so I would kill his horse. What's, that doesn't make any sense. Both and there also, it's <laughs> the same language. Nefesh, tachas, nefesh. Yeah, he says, if he, he knocks off your hand, you're going to knock off his hand. What's that going to help you? Okay, so he goes on, the Kuzari goes on with that. Fine, there's more similar sources like that. On a little bit more of a mystical level, you have the Rikanti, or the Rikanati, I think it's supposed to be pronounced, who says that the reason why the Torah uses the words nefesh tachas ayin tachas ayin is to teach you another lesson, that every mitzvah, the truth is already Reb Sadigoyen writes that every word of the Torah has the, has the has secrets of the Torah hidden behind it, and we don't know really why the Torah words it in a certain way, but the Rikanati, who's a Kabbalist, he says that it's teaching you that every part of um, the body corresponds to a supernal, so to speak, part of Hashem's body, mm-hmm. and whenever you do something good or bad, you're affecting a cataclysmic change because it affects Lamaila. Uh, so that's why Ayin Tachasayin, we're telling you that, you, yeah, obviously in practice you're just going to pay money, but you mm-hmm. should know that by knocking out somebody's eye, you've actually inflicted real damage in your neshama, in, say, the Hishtalshalos, in sort of the, in the manner, realm. in the cosmic, exactly. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> All right, now... I think it's probably the worst part is causing the damage in this realm, but that's just me. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're not <laughs> such a capitalist. No, what could you like you hurt my arm here, but my, some nostalgicalist uh, arm. But it's not just. about, I think the Rukanati's point. This about, one hurts. No, but I, I, I think I think his point is broader than just an arm for an arm. I think he's trying to. He's saying that this is a general lesson the Torah is telling you that any time a person does any avera, mm-hmm. that what's happening, the damage done is more than what meets the eye. Mm. Well, and that's, I wrote down a question for later, but I'll ask yeah. it now because it's related. So, I, I haven't heard any discussion about um, compensating for pain and suffering. Yeah, so, so, so that's, there's, there's five, when a person damages somebody else, there's five categories of payment that have to be done. There's Nezak, Tzad, Ripu, Shavis, So we'll go through them quickly. Nezak is the damage. That's what we're talking about now. How much damage did he cause him? That means, like we said before, what would he have cost in the slave market before? What does he cost in the slave market now? Then there's Tsar. Tsar is the pain. And the way Chazal say is, okay, let, let's say you amputated his arm. So you've, Nezak, you've already paid for his arm. You don't know him that anymore. But what would be the difference between... Let's say the guy had to have his arm amputated and he could do it pain-free or with the pain that you inflicted him. How much would he pay for that difference, right? Let's say, in, let's use modern terms, he had to have his arm amputated and he could do it um, with anesthesia and, or, or without. What would he pay for that difference? That's how we value the price tag for the pain. That's Tsar. Sheves is to pay for how much time he was out of work. Ripoy is to pay his medical bills, and Boishas is if there was a humiliation involved. So all of these things, five different categories have to be evaluated, how much they're worth, and that's what he has to pay. Now, is, it, is that, are all those categories derived from these Pasuks we've discussed, or is that coming from yeah. something else? No, well, not necessarily from only these Pasukim, but they're all derived from Pasukim, yes. But for murder, it's worse, because it's not only an individual. It's if he could have a family or children now, I need to get back to telling you one fascinating suggestion which Rabbi Mandel Kasha makes, and this spans over the, over the, 
over many, many pages in his, in his book over here, that he wants to suggest like this. In Mara, which is right after the splitting of the sea, <coughs> the Jews are given Sham Sam Mishpat, the Jews are given certain mitzvahs. Which mitzvahs are they given? So according to some opinions, the laws of Mishpatim that we read yesterday were given then. Yeah. Now, problem is that some of those laws cannot be fully implemented or even understood before Sinai. For example, for example, um, one of the laws of Mishpatim is that if the slave wants to stay, then his ear is pierced, and he remains a slave forever. How long is forever? Till Yovel. Till the year of Yovel, yeah? Till the Jubilee, then that's free. The whole concept of Yovel doesn't exist until Sinai. As it says explicitly in Parshish Bahar, an introduction to the rule of Yovel, that this was said at Sinai. Right. So, you're telling me right? So one way of understanding it is that there were certain laws that had different parameters when they were given in Mara, and those parameters were updated later on. Now, when is later on? It could be Sinai, it could be even later. So, for example, the Ramban wants to suggest that the mitzvah of circumcision has three parts, right? Mila, Priya, and Metzitzah. We're going to talk just about Mila and Priya. Mila means to circumcise, to remove the foreskin. And Priya means that after you remove the foreskin, there is some thin membrane that remains over there. And there's a mitzvah to remove that, to, re- to, to, to remove that as well. <coughs> so the Ramban makes the argument that the mitzvah of Mila, as it applied in the desert, did not include that second step. And it was only before going into the land that it included that second step. Now, so it says... That wasn't included in the mitzvah of Mila then. Priya wasn't. Priya wasn't. Yeah. Says, he brings many, many examples for this. Um, <coughs> so therefore, he wants, to fini- he wants to suggest that this would be according to Rebeleza. Remember we said Rebeleza holds that nefesh, ben, the ayin by ayin means literally, and we said, oh, no, no, it can't mean literally. He says, maybe, it does mean literally. And what he means to say is, what was the source that the Rambam brought, the first source that it doesn't mean literally eye for an eye, because it says, don't take ransom for a murderer, so we deduce from that that you can't take ransom for somebody who damaged, right? Where does it say that? Remember where I pointed out when we saw that pasuk? That was given at the end of the 40 years. So it could be that initially when Ayin was given in Mara, it meant take out the guy's eye. 40 years later, it was updated to mean only you have to take you have to take, uh, you, you, you take money for it, you don't take, you don't actually take out his eye. Now, it also, I mean, this touches upon the whole topic of um, the comparing, contrasting um, mitzvahs in the Torah between man and man as they relate to other codes of the time, like, how do you say this in English? The, you said this to me yesterday, the Marab. Oh, the Hammurabi. The Hammurabi the or the Hittite codes. So there's a lot of, and we're not going to get into that, but I just want to point out, like it could be that, you know, during the time in the desert where we're looking to sort of be better than them, we're doing that, uh, we're doing it one way or to somehow cooperate with them, and then that, that could be a reason possibly for change. That's just a wild yeah, suggestion. Take it, take, it or leave, take it or leave it. Um, uh, let's, let's try, we have a few minutes left. Let's, I want to try and finish a few things, and then we'll... And then, uh, and then we'll we'll have time for discussion afterwards. We just have to have a lot more to pack in, if possible. Um, now, uh, another very very important source about this whole topic is the Rambam's word in his guide for the perplexed in the Marina Bukhim. 
<coughs> and <coughs> I'm going to read you the way it's referenced by the Rambam's own son, Rabbi Rambam the Rambam, in his commentary to the Torah on this pasuk. He says, The Rambam, this is originally written in Arabic, so this is a translation. The <coughs> This is a straightforward meaning of the Pasuk is clear that it means actually an eye for an eye. However, tradition teaches us that it refers to the money of an eye or a tooth for a tooth. There is basis for this tradition already in the Psukim themselves and in the end intellectual proofs, Kosvam Rabsadia Al-Babruji, as Rabsadia himself writes, and we saw before the discussion between Rabsadia and Ben Sutta. And then he brings the proof that the Rambam brought that we now know comes from Mechilta Dirashbi. And then he says, Ola Abamari's Albamaira. My father, in his guide, Ramaz Bazeh, he alludes to the fact that he has given over a verbal interpretation, which has a wondrous um, syn- synthesis. Some fantastic way to synthesize between the tradition and the actual straightforward meaning of the Pasuk. But I can't tell it to you because he has hidden it. So the Rambam writes that explicitly in the Murat in chapter in, in the Chela Gimel <coughs> um, volume th- part 3 of the Murat I'm pretty sure it's chapter Mem Aleph, yeah, 41 um, where the Rambam writes clearly that there's something here which I can't tell you, it's a secret I'm going well, to tell it to you but I can't write it down here and this, of course, as you can imagine, has baffled scholars trying to guess what, it, what exactly is this tremendous secret that the Rambam has, which is going to somehow shed light on this entire topic, which he cannot tell us. Um, now, um, different interpretations have been suggested, um, and hopefully we're going to leave you with a b- little bit of a shock factor. <laughs> so, one suggestion made by Reb David Hoffman and others is that, and this kind of ties in with some ideas which I sprinkled throughout the last hour, that perhaps there's a biblical and rabbinic level going on in here. Mm-hmm. That on a biblical level, and this ties back to the Rambam of the Sikhokoifer, that perhaps on a biblical level, when the Torah says, don't take ransom for a murderer, but you can't, so we deduce you can't take ransom for such a person, it just means an allowance. So, from a biblical level, you have a choice. You could either knock out the person's eye, or you could charge him money. And then Chazal came along, and they established, no, we're always going to use the second option and never revert to the first option. So that is um, one suggestion that's possibly made um, as what the Ramba means. Obviously, not no way to know for certain. No way, um, and many have argued why would the Ramba need to hide that? It's not juicy enough. It's not so juicy, um, and and uh, you know, essentially, as as the Makbili Rambam Merinavuchim points out, he says one thing that's for sure clear is that the Rambam doesn't want us to to poke over here. He's telling you. Leave it alone. So just leave it alone. Stop trying to guess, right? <laughs> um, now, there is a, I showed you before this whole book, Ayin Tachasayin, written by a Chabad scholar, Yoho Matasov, and his theory is that what the Rambam means to say is um, that 
it depends if it's a Jew or a non-Jew. If the um. if you knock out the eye of the Jew, then you pay money. But if the non-Jew knocks out the eye, then we're gonna then we're gonna knock out his eye. Anyway, he's very very excited about this idea, and he says that would make sense why the Rambam hides it. Yes. And based on this, and he has a I whole ch- he has a whole chapter of how many. Um, different questions and problems with all different Rambams would all fall so neatly in line if only you would accept my suggestion that, um, that this is what the Rambam means. This is going to be perfectly wonderful. Again, it's, I mean, it's a thick book. Most of the book is actually about something else, but it's, you know, it's a good few pages just about this theory of his. However, um, you might not be surprised to hear that the Rambam has written some very juicy stuff about non-Jews, which he didn't seem to see the, see, to see the need to hide. He's no Meiri, right? No, not at all. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you something very juicy, and if you, this is so juicy that it was actually removed from any editions of the Rambam's commentary to the Mishnah because it was way too dangerous to publish. But nowadays we have it, and this is what the Rambam says. This is commenting to the Mishnah in the fourth chapter of Bavikama, where um, it talks about differences in damages libel when, when a Jew does it, when a guy does it. Um, and he says that if, he says that if a person has a, 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 a dispute with a guy, then it depends. If it's better for you, if it's going to be better for the Jew if he goes to the secular courts, go to the secular courts. If it's going to be better to go to the Jewish courts, you take him to the Jewish courts. This should not be difficult to you that we just, you know, treat them however we want. Just like you shouldn't wonder that you're allowed to slaughter animals. Even though they did nothing wrong. Somebody who doesn't have complete human um, characteristics, I guess. is not truly a person. He's just there for the purpose of man. Speaking or elaborating on this topic, Tarek Sefer Nifrid warrants its own full work. Okay? I kid you not, those are the words of the Rambam. Uh, and so, whatever exactly the Rambam means and how we interpret it and how we understand it, is, as the Rambam himself acknowledges, the topic of its own book unto itself. But um, Rabbi, the, Rabbi Maimon, who's the uh, Mahadir who published the, 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 in a wonderful edition which we have here in the library of Rabbi Ram Ben Rambam's commentaries to the Torah, so in his footnotes he says, I find it hard to believe Rabbi Matasov's suggestion if the Rambam could publish this. Um, certainly he could publish. Well, Maimon's saying that because he's a descendant of the Maimonides. Okay. He's sticking up for his, his uh, ancestors. All right. Now is the time when anybody who wants to leave is dismissed, and anybody who wants to ask further questions and discussion, the, the question floor is I yours. David Yehuda is first. I, I, I think we should step back and we should say, what is the purpose of the law? Is it punitive? Is it preventative? Or is it civil law in which we're intending to... I mean, punitive is punitive. You're going to punish somebody. So is that the reason? Or is it to prevent people from gouging out other people's eyes, or are you just simply trying to get them money so yeah. that they can go on in their lives? That's an excellent question, and one of the articles that I printed on this topic that I did not um, get the chance to read thoroughly is precisely on that topic. I have a printout of the article on my desk. Yeah. It's in Hebrew, so um, you could Hebrew Google Translate it, um, or maybe I'll get around to reading it and get back to what you said. But there's definitely that—that that is certainly a relevant question. Yeah, different terms. Because uh, yeah. you know, okay. 
So I was jotting down a few questions, and, and one of them, I was thinking, oh, does, does this only apply to Jews, okay? And started to address that. So where I'm going to go with this, and I don't know if you want to keep recording my question, but given the war in Gaza, That's what just and all the, <laughs> the, okay, I don't know if, I'm just going to use a term here, I don't know if it's true, collateral damage, people who are innocent, um, get killed, maimed, their, their, their homes destroyed, whatever, their businesses, is there an obligation for Eretz Yisrael, when this is all over, to compensate those people? No, they have to go to, to the international that? court and, and <laughs> ask for money. They should go to the Hague. <laughs> and those okay. terrorists have to be executed. No, okay, let's keep this. Let's keep this. this. Right. He's talking about the collateral damage. He's talking, no, no, we're talking about. It. I, I think that. I, I think that. First of all, that's a very. It's a very very good question, and you're planting an idea in my mind to maybe even do a full blown class on that. But I think that the crux of the answer is going to be that there's a huge difference, and this is true both in Torah law and in secular, I believe, international law, that there's a difference between damages between two parties and war. And part of war, war is ugly, and part of war is collateral damage, and uh, that's just part of the price you pay. There's international treaties. I'm going to echo him on this, but like... The responsibility to pay for all the damage that's in Gaza is on Hamas. That's their elected body. They're the ones that should take care of it. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. You reap what you sow. So I'm going I'm I'm to completely rephrase Steve's question. Um, Israel, I don't know if this ever happened, but in theory, right? Israel fire um, a explosive, whatever, to, to, uh, to, Gaza, uh, to Gaza, and somehow it does damage to a Jewish home in Sterot. Does the Israeli government have the responsibility oh, right. to yeah, pay... Yeah, for that. For so that I, so I, think that's, I think that's but probably included in your question, no, but... Yeah, because what happens in Gaza is not our responsibility, right? They right. have an elected government, right? They, yeah. they, they, they but I'm saying well, I want to I try and free, divorce the question of all the very, very accurately or warranted emotional response and just sort of zoom into the actual legal part of the question. If you live in Gaza, you're under the governance of your elected body. I didn't vote for Netanyahu. Am I responsible for... 